chapter 13. Let's stand together, if you would, please, for the reading of the Word. And, of course, this passage would be familiar to many, many of you, maybe not everyone, but to many of you. And so I'm not going to read all the way through verse number 19, but we're going to read parts of it, and you'll get the gist of it as we go along. So verse number 1, it says, The same day went Jesus out of the house, and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. So I want you to notice where it states very clearly there were great multitudes. Not multitudes. Great multitudes. And uh, so just let your imagination go. If, if great is this big, I've studied the word great as it's given here. And if great is this big, I'm sorry, if, uh, if a multitude is this big, then a great multitude is this big. I mean, it just, it really sweats, it expands. So understand there were a very large number of people gathered together in the hymn. You'll see why I'm pointing that out in just a moment. So then he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. The fowls came and devoured them up. And then verse 5 and 6, it talks about the seed that fell in the stony places. And verse number 7, the seed that fell among the thorns. And verse 8, the seed that fell upon the good ground. Now look at verse number 9. Jesus said, Who has ears to hear? Let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And Jesus began, verse number 11, to answer and said unto them, And if you'll drop down to verse 13, I'm not trying to avoid anything, I'm just trying to keep the focus on where we are going. Look at verse number 13. Therefore speak I to them, now they ask the question. So the disciples did. So Jesus is answering the question and then expounding upon it down through verse 19. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah or Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear, for verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Then he goes on, verse 18 and 19. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and fetcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed 
by the wayside. And then he goes on to expound upon the seed that fell among stones, thorns, and upon the good ground. Now, maybe you can tell by the emphasis thus far that we're going to give our attention today to the seed that fell by the wayside. And I would like to, or I have given, the title of this sermon, Understanding the Wayside Harvest. Understanding the Wayside Harvest. Father, we are very thankful today for the privilege, the joy to assemble together. And I want to thank you, Lord, for Victory Baptist Church and for the testimony of this congregation. And I pray, Lord, that the service this morning might be meaningful, might it be profitable. Certainly we do pray for the followers and for others, Lord, that are afflicted. And we pray for your good grace upon them and they might know recovery soon. And now, Lord, I pray that you would add your blessings to this time. And I pray that we would be among those who indeed have ears to hear. And get glory to yourself, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thank you, may you speak. Most in here understand that <clears throat> we are impressed. I'm, I'm not speaking for you, but I'm just saying, people in general, uh, we are impressed with large crowds. We, we are just impressed with big assemblies or very large crowds. Uh, I've seen uh, from aerial uh, photos and pictures. And film of the mall in Washington, D.C., they call it. And that's a strip of land before the Capitol building of about a mile long. And they say that for special occasions, there have been as many as a million people assembled in that place. So they look down upon that, and you just cannot but stand in awe of just the mass of humanity. Here we are in the, uh, what, third week of the college football season starting. And so yesterday, they would have shown by Goodyear Blimp and by other means, they would show the overview of stadiums. Some of the stadiums, like Notre Dame and Michigan and other despicable places like that, uh, they would show the view of that with 100-plus thousand people that are assembled there. Just an incredible sight to see on a beautiful fall afternoon. I remember studying with my son uh, the last time that I went to an Oklahoma football game, and I lived within an hour and a half of uh, where the Sooners play football for all of my life. And uh, I've already been about five games, so I'm not much to make it to the games, but the last one I got to go to, they were playing Texas A&M. And I'll never forget that... Uh, the Texas A&M, the military band that they had, they'd already marched off the field for the preliminaries, and it was just an uh, empty time there. Nobody was on the field. Must have been a TV timeout, too. Nothing was happening, and we're waiting there. My son and I are in the north end zone, and they had, I think, the stadium seats about 84,000 people now, and they seated about 72 then, so every seat was full, and you look across there from that end zone and look at 72,000 people. In that still moment. And I said to my son, 
I wish I had the microphone for one hour. I just wish I had the microphone for one hour. And my son kind of looked at me and I said, I'd like to preach. Because if we're serious about who we are as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't look at the multitudes and say, wow, what a crowd. We first and foremost look at 72,000 souls that are going to spend eternity in heaven or hell, and every one of which needs to hear a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd like to have the microphone one hour. My son's a smart guy. He said, Dad, you need it two hours. Well, as long as I'm listening, I'd be happy with two hours as well. Now, the reason I say that is because Jesus looked on the multitudes. Now, not just the multitude, was it? It was a great multitude. So there was a massive amount of humanity there, and Jesus looked upon the multitudes. Never was Jesus just impressed with the size of a crowd. In other words, you never read it recorded where Jesus turned to the disciples and said, see how many people are coming to hear me? And to see my works? That was just not the way it was. And so when Jesus saw the multitudes, he saw deeper. This is where I got the idea that Jesus saw deeper. He saw differently than many people. And when Jesus looked and saw the great multitudes that were assembled together, I will tell you what he saw. Soil. Dirt. That's what he saw. And the reason I know that, same reason you could see it as well. When he looked at the multitudes, he immediately then said, and I in my own heart, I can't prove this, so you can take it or leave it, but in my own heart, knowing Jesus, the master teacher, the master of the metaphor, the master of the visual aid, I'm sure that Jesus probably did something like this. Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and probably over on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee, there was a tilled field there, and a farmer sowing the seed in the hillside. Now, don't make me strange. You know that it would be like Jesus to make it very, very clear to me. And behold me, look, so behold, a sower went forth to sow. And over on the hillside would have been this man sowing, and he had the bag over his shoulder. He's a right-handed man. He had it over, slung across his neck and over this way, and holding the bag open with his hand, and then walking through the tilled field, field and masterfully sowing the seed by the broadcast method. That's how they would have done it. And so I can just see him sowing the seed out there. Now, uh, Jesus pointed out that there can be various kinds of soil. I know from being a farm boy, my dad was a wheat farmer in North Central Oklahoma. I can remember the largest field that we had that it had four distinct types of soil in it. And I'm not going to go through all of that. It's not an agriculture lesson this morning. But Jesus points out four different types of soil here. And the sower is going out to sow. And so he shows the man that is out there sowing. And he said, as he sowed, some of the seed, he begins by saying, some of the seed is going to fall on the wayside. Some of it will fall on the wayside. Now, what is the wayside? 
Right, you come back to our part of the country, and not ours alone, but our part of the country, you can drive down these county roads, and, and you got uh, sections of land out in the plains that are uh, sectioned off by 640 acres, and then many of them have quarter sections, and then you seldom ever see a 640-acre field in our part of the country, but a lot of 160-acre pasture fields such as that. And so, uh, in their part of the country, ours is divided by roads and fences, ditches. But in their time, and in their part of the country, they would have been separated by the paths that the workers and the farmers used between the properties. So there'd be a road that would lead out to the farm area, into the fields, and such as that. And then they would split off, and this path would signify that there is a farmer on this side, and there is another farmer on this side. And so that path is called the wayside. Now, what do we know about uh, the wayside? What do we know about dirt when it is traveled over and over again? Because that path between them would have been trodden over time and again by the foot of man. It would have been trodden over again by the donkeys or the oxen and the, uh, the uh, kind of livestock that they would have used for their farming by the carts, the wheels of carts, you had the wayside that would be traveled over, over and again. Now, the dirt of the wayside was no different than the dirt right on either side, except for one thing. It becomes very, very hard. And so, as the man is broadcasting the seed, he doesn't come to the edge of the field and say, well, I better go thin there because I don't want him to fall on the wayside. No, he's not thinking about that. He is thinking primarily about covering all the till soil well because that's where his production is going to come from. And by chance, there will be some that lands on the wayside. Now, what happens to the seed that lands on the wayside? See, there's the till field that come along with another instrument that will put the seed under the ground a little more and then it will germinate and it will grow. But what happens to the seed that falls on the wayside? It just lies there. Or the birds come, as Jesus taught you, and takes it away. In Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the place, it might blow off of there before a bird could get to it. But I'm just saying, it's not going to work. It's not going to produce. It's not going to penetrate the soil. It's not going to do what is necessary. I mean, even if an animal steps on the seed, it's not going to penetrate the soil to where there is moisture so that it can germinate. It's going to come to absolutely nothing. And why is that so? Because the soil of the wayside is so hard, like that. And it will not penetrate, and it will not be able to grow. Now, when Jesus looked upon the individuals there, he said, Behold, the sower went to stone. Now, as we look at this parable, it becomes very clear to us, and there's hardly any disagreement about this whatsoever, can't be, uh, that when you look at the parable, then you understand that in the parable, Jesus is the sower, and the seed is the Word of God, and the heart of man is the sower. 
So there you have it right there. Jesus is going to stand before them, and he is going to sow the seed himself, and he understands that there are different kinds of soil. The soil that is hard and the seed cannot produce, the seed that falls into the ground that is shallow, and it will produce very little of anything, the seed that falls among the thorns and choked out, and the seed that falls among the good ground. So Jesus looked out and knew that, and yet he knew that the farmer would sow indiscriminately. He still goes ahead and sows the seed. So Jesus, knowing who is there and understanding the hearts of men, come on, John helped us with that. He let us know that Jesus knew all men, and he knew what was in them, and he understood them that need not begin to testify to him of men. So when Jesus looked out there, he said, there's some of the seed that is sown that is going to fall on the wayside. All right, now, we understand what the wayside is, I hope, by now. And we understand that the wayside seed is not going to produce anything. We do understand that. So we understand that in the agricultural realm, what does that have to do with the heart of man? Because that's what Jesus is interested in. And what it has to do with the heart of man is this. The scripture tells us, beginning in verse 13, that the people, now watch this please, the people that Jesus stands before as the teacher-preacher, these people have a long, long history of not or refusing to hear the word of God. Look in verse 13. Let's try to make this abundantly clear. Jesus said, Therefore speak I unto them, unto who? The multitudes that are out there. Excuse me. Who are out there? The Jews that have come. By now they were coming from, he said, by the Sea of Galilee. By now they were coming from not only Galilee and not only Judea, but beyond Jordan. And everywhere the Jews were found. No, Jesus is in his public ministry, and his miracles are well known everywhere. And people are coming from everywhere so that we would have a situation where there are great multitudes assembled there. Not multitudes, great multitudes assembled there. And so here they have come. And here's what Jesus said about them. That is about the people that are before him, the Jewish people that are before him that have come from everywhere. Look what he said. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. The disciples asked, why do you do that? What do you teach in parables? He's answering Therefore, speak unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Now, stop right there for just a second. Sometimes your reader might look at that and say, well, I mean, they just, they don't see it. Well, I mean, they just, they don't get it. It just says right there, neither do they understand. Now, I've got to make this very clear here. That, that they don't see, and that they don't hear, and that they do not understand is not a bless your heart moment. Well, bless your heart, you just can't see it. Well, bless your heart, you just don't hear it. Well, bless your heart, you don't understand it. My wife and I spent seven weeks in uh, uh, July and into August uh, in Georgia, South Carolina, and uh, North Carolina, preaching and uh, preaching all kinds of places. And so I was told by a preacher in Georgia, 
grew up at Georgia Man, ran the Athens area there. He said, Brother Sam, here's what you need to know about preaching in the South. You can tell people anything you want because you'll just say, bless your heart. And so I tried that, and some people have got about as great a response as that. But I don't know if you know that I've used a lot down here or not. But I'm just telling you right now, this is not a bless your heart moment, you know. Well, bless your heart, they don't get it. Bless your heart, no, this is not where Jesus is going with this. And so he said that they do not, uh, that, that seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Now watch this, look at verse 14. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. Now watch this for just a second. See, Isaiah preached 800 years before Jesus came. And Jesus said, this people, Isaiah said this about them. All right? Now, the people that Jesus stands before, obviously, are not the same people except they are the product of those people that Isaiah preached to. And here's what Isaiah said about the people of his day and how the people of his day would continue to be from generation to generation. Isaiah said, they are going to be people that will not hear and will not see. So that, here's the point, it, it, so that when Isaiah and others of the prophets, I mean, I challenge you to read, for example, you know, the major prophets. Read uh, Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, and it's not like it's found in them alone, it's found with the other prophets as well, but very clearly with these three prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that they would stand before the people and they would say, Thus saith the Lord. That's all they had to say. That's all we've got to say that matters is what the Lord says. And so they would stand before the people and say, Thus saith the Lord. Now, if you know anything about their history, you know that these prophets were primarily not sent to pat them on the head and say, You're doing good. God loves you and I love you. to be a later. That's not where they were. They were generally there to confront them about their sick spiritual condition before God. And so when they stood before them, they would say, Thus saith the Lord, and tell them that from the perspective of God, from the lens of God's view, what they need to do is repent of their sin and humble themselves and get right with God. And Isaiah preached that, and Jeremiah preached that, and Ezekiel preached that, and so did other prophets. And as we preached that to them, here would be their response. We don't see what you're saying. Well, of course I don't see what they're saying. They had their hands over their spiritual eyes and they did not want to see what they were saying. And I can hear Isaiah or Jeremiah Ezekiel doing what preachers now do. I mean, I do this all the time. I'm asking, do you get it? I mean, do you hear me? Are you seeing this? And so, if Isaiah or Jeremiah would have said, can you see it? They would have said, no. Do you hear what I'm saying? No. We don't hear what you're saying. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not because it couldn't be understood, but because they refused to receive it. Now that's where they were. Somebody said, well, what was their problem? We'll look at verse 15. And where's that? Look at this. For this people's heart is... Oh, he's talking about the people right before him. He's talking about the condition of the Jewish nation as a whole. Is everybody listening to this? And he said, for this people, they continue to be now, they continue to be now what they were under Isaiah, and this people's heart is 
wax growth so that their ears are dull, their eyes they have closed, and their ears they have stopped, and so they do not understand. So here, basically, is the condition of the nation of Israel by Jesus' own measure. They are, their heart, it's a heart issue, always is. Their heart is wax growth. What does that mean? Really, very simple. Sounds gross, doesn't it? But it's really very simple. It simply means that they're callous. Their heart is wax gross, means it's callous. You can study it out with the definition, and you'll see. It just means that their heart has grown callous. How does something get callous? And I used to, you know, my mom, there was six of us kids, I was six or six, everybody played an instrument, and my mom was determined I was going to play an instrument, stuck a mandolin in my hand, and I learned to take out on the mandolin. I mean, nobody's ever accused me of being a mandolin player, but I could take out some stuff, and I enjoyed it, and I, after even I got married, I did it quite a bit, and I enjoyed harassing my wife with it, you know. I'd sing along and try to get her to sing along. She'd just roll her eyeballs in her head. But anyway, I'd sing and I'd get that uh, memo. Then I went for years, didn't mess with it any. And then one uh, time about, oh, six, eight years ago, I was home around the Christmas time and I was doing something in the closet where I hung my suits and I looked up there on the shelf and I noticed that memo. I pulled the case down, got it out, see if it was in tune. It was enough for me, not for a real player. So it was in tune enough. So I started taking out, this world is not my home. I'm just a pastor. Through, and I sang the first verse, and I started on the second verse, and I quit. And my wife said, What'd you quit for? I said, I'm not into pain. My fingers were killing me. I've been playing years. My hands are soft. I'm a creature. I don't do any work for crying out loud. And my hands were soft. <laughs> I mean, and, and it was pitiful. She said, Would you play it? And I said, It's hard again. I said, No, I'm not into pain. I'm not going to do it. And so I put it back up and haven't touched it since. But anybody that plays a string instrument knows that you do that over and over and over. And most people, like my brothers that played the guitar and uh, banjo and mandolin and stuff like that, their fingers were always hard on the end. My oldest brother, he's 86 years old, and it's still hard like that. I mean, it's just real hard. Callous and doing it over and over. Raised on a farm, we worked, you know, hauled hay, carried buckets, did all kinds of work, did all that kind of business, you know. And I, I can just remember that my brothers said, Sissies wear gloves. That's what they said. Well, I, my brother's great, 10 years older than me. I don't want to be a sissy. I always had calluses on my hand. You know, I, I always, from doing the work on the farm, always had calluses on my hand. And I'd pick at them. Others bite their fingernails, stuff like that. I was always picking at my calluses, drove my mom crazy. <laughs> And she threatened to make me wear gloves all the time, so I'd leave my uh, my my callus uh, as well. Well, you, you do the same thing over and over, and it becomes callus. Back in the day, before you shop to get a house built, and men drove hammers, they had calluses right here from hanging onto that hammer. Yeah, oh, just do the same thing over and over. But what's that got to do with this? Stop here, just that. Would you think with me about Israel? And how many times God approached them with thus saith the Lord? I'm talking about from the time they entered into the land of Canaan, in the times of the judges, the prophet came and said, and another prophet came and said, and in the times of the kings, another 400-year period. 
uh, the kings were confronted and they were challenged by the prophets and the word of the Lord that came to them saying, and the word of the Lord that came to them saying, and there was an 800 year period there approximately from the time that they went into the land until uh, the time of the captivity of about 800 years, ladies and gentlemen, where God sent the prophets over and over and over and over and even at the beginning of the captivity, they were still, God was still sending the prophets and the prophets were still Confronted them like Jeremiah until his death, and Ezekiel, a prophet of the captivity, and Daniel, with thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and the response to God speaking to them was the same every time. And refused to understand. Over and over again. And what was taking place? Something was taking place in their heart. Because it was with their heart they must believe. I said it was with their heart they must believe. And it was with their heart that they refused to believe. And when somebody refuses to believe, something is happening to the heart. What is it? Getting traveled over by the Word of God. Only to be rejected. Traveled over. Only to be rejected. And the more it happens, the more hardened the heart becomes. Being a preacher these years, you, you might know I've got all kinds of stories. But one that stands out about this, to see the hardness of heart, happened quite a few years ago, and the man's name was Roy. His daughter said to me, would you go visit my dad? And Brother Sam, he is on oxygen, in Pristina, the doctors were saying he didn't have long to leave. Would you go see him? She said, now, the pastor before you, he went to see him and witnessed to him. And my sister and I, two godly women, uh, we have witnessed the dead time and again. But we're really concerned. Would you go see and give him the gospel? I said, I told her my name. Of course, I'd be happy to. She said, now, you got to know, he doesn't like preachers. <laughs> and so he doesn't like preaching. And I said, Well, that has nothing to do with the fact he needs the gospel, you know. So I went to his house just very soon after that. And I went on a, like a Tuesday evening, something like that. And I remember it was in the summertime, and, and I pull up in this uh, deal on the other side of the tracks, literally, where this dear man lived in this little shack. Couldn't weigh 100 pounds. Small, man, slight, ill. On oxygen, he sat down on his porch of his little shack. There was a shotgun house like you said in the mining communities. You go in front door and out the back door, and you walk through every room of the house as you go through. It's just one of those places that I went out there. As I was walking up the uh, makeshift sidewalk there, I heard a radio, and the closer I got, I knew I recognized the voice. It's the voice of uh, Jack Buck, was the announcer of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball. I grew up listening to. Cardinals play baseball and always been a Cardinal fan. And so I walked up and I just said to him, I said, Cardinals winning? Before I got close enough, you know, very close to him. I said, Cardinals winning? He said, yeah, they're ahead right now. And I said, well, they're, they're doing pretty good, aren't they? He said, well, not too bad, not too bad. I said, who's your favorite Cardinal of all time? He said, oh, uh, I'm so old, you wouldn't know any of the names. And I said, well, I've read quite a bit about the Redbirds, so you might try them. 
And of course, I recognized the names, and he said, "Who's your favorite?" We stood there and talked. I stood there, and we talked baseball for 20 minutes. I mean, it was great. We were reliving some of the Cardinals' history and their pennants and World Series championships and all that kind of stuff. And he said, "He looked at me and said, who are you?" <laughs> like, what are we doing talking here? I don't even know who you are." And I said, "Well, I'm your uh, daughter's pastor." And, uh, she wanted me to come by and talk to you. I didn't really come by to talk baseball. I really came by to talk to you about your story. Well, he said, come on in. And he turned the radio off and then pulled up a chair inside. No air conditioning, rain, fan blowing. I'm not making this up. Mice running across the floor. It was a very unique situation, you know. And I sat down with him and I started talking and I gave him the whole gospel. I mean, I, I went through it deliberately and patiently, and he nodded his head. I asked him if he understood. He asked a question or two. We went through it, and I really felt like, you know, fishers and men, I thought, this is wonderful. We're going to land this one right here. And I kept reading in, and right at the end, he said, not today. No, not today. And so I tried to push the issue, and he pushed back, you know, and I didn't want him to leave the door open. So I left, and, and uh, then uh, I said, can I come back and see you again? And he said, come back any time. A couple weeks later, I went back. So that kind of scenario happened about three, maybe four times. And the last time I was there, here's what he said to me. He said, no, I'm not going to get saved tonight. But he said, uh, I promise you this, before I die, I will. And I said, oh, Roy, you can't make me that promise. He said, well, I just did. I'm a man of my word. And before I die, I'll get it done. Well, time went on a short time, no more than a month. And I got a call one day, and she is in court with the attorney she worked for, and she couldn't get away for a while, the daughter, and said, they uh, let me know that Dad is dying, and they don't believe he'll make it through the day. Brother Sam, could you go up there? I dropped everything, went right up there, and I walked in the room, and there's Roy laying there, of course, uh, with all hooked up to kind of stuff. And his ex-wife was there, who was a member of our church. And I said, uh, called her by name, and I said, uh, is he cognizant ever? Or is she said, yeah. Well, Sam, I think, if, I think if you can wake him up, I think he would know you and you could talk to him. And so I got a hold of his bony little shoulder, gently shook it and called his name out loud, hard here too, and I crawled out real loud. And called his name, and he opened his eyes, and he looked at me, and I said, Roy, I'm the preacher. Do you remember me? Yeah. yeah. He called my name. Yeah. And I said, Roy, uh, they tell me you're dying. Yeah. That's what you said. And I said, they say you're not going to leave this room. Yeah. That's what they said. I said, Roy, do you remember a promise to me that before you died, you'd get saved? He said, I said, Roy, it's time. It's time. And I went through a few things, and I said, Roy, it's time for you. And by the time I said a little bitty prayer, and if you asked him to pray, he was out again. Got him awake again. Went through some more, and uh, he went out again while I was talking to him. Got him awake again, and I said, Roy, you're running out of time. It's time to call on Jesus. I want, I'm going to pray and help you, and it's time for you to call on Jesus and be saved. You've kept your word, Roy. It's time to pray. 
and his countenance changed, and the tone and strength of his voice changed, and he said, No. With an attitude. No. Man, I knew for a week I was about to call him just sick, not what I expected at all. I said, Boy, you said you're a man of your word, and you're going to call on the Lord before you die. You're dying, sir. He's and drifted off. When I finally left the room, I noticed a commotion behind me and I went back and he was gone. And ever since that day, I've thought, not every day, but in situations like this, in witnessing opportunities and such as this, trying to lead somebody to Christ who's procrastinating and leading it off, I've gone back and back. And I've even used it and asked people, do you really want the last thing that you ever say being no to God? No to the cross? No to why Jesus died? Now, I don't know who's here in this room this morning. I don't know everybody. But I'm just saying, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're trifling with your soul, friend. And you have no assurance that it's going to be done at your convenience that you call on Jesus to be your Savior. You'll call on Him to be your Savior when the Holy Ghost is working on your heart and giving you opportunity. You need to know that. If there's somebody here today and say, I'm not, I've been a member of this church for years. You know you can be a member of the church and be lost as could be? I mean, I've seen it too many times over the years where I get shot myself as a pastor to see somebody come to get saved that I thought was already saved and so did everybody else. It doesn't matter who thinks you're saved. If you know you're not, you don't have trifle with yourself. Because every time you hear the gospel, to say no to the gospel, something is happening to your heart. But here's the thing about about this passage. I thought about this one. Since I got saved, which was 70 years ago, for crying out loud, I was a six-year-old boy. When I got saved, you know, I thought about it like this. I've heard a lot more of the Word of God. The seed is the Word. The soil is the heart. Somebody say amen, please. I've heard a lot more of the Word of God since I've been saved than before I got saved. And what I want you to consider is what I force myself to consider. Can I find anywhere in the Bible that this hardness of heart happens only to unbelievers who reject the gospel? Or how would it be any different if it was a saved person that is being confronted by the Word of God but does not answer to the Word of God and goes on their merry own stubborn and rebellious way? Do I have any basis in the Bible to believe anything other than the heart of that person is being affected? And it's being affected just like the heart of Roy. He heard to say no, heard to say no, heard and said no. And every time he did, something was happening to his heart. They heard it from generation after generation after generation. And they became so hardened in their collective heart that they cried about the Son of God, away with him, his blood be upon us, and our children crucify him, crucify him. That's how hard their heart was. Now, what makes a believer, other than pride, what makes a believer believe, I can say yes and no to whatever I please about the Word of God, and nothing is going to affect my heart? You do not have any biblical basis to back that up at all. 
And whenever you and I are confronted by the Word of God, it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday morning, it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday night, it doesn't matter if it's when you're reading your Bible. It doesn't matter when you're listening to a devotion. It doesn't matter. When we're confronted by the Word of God, and we refuse to humble ourselves to be affected and changed by the Word of God, for our heart to make the right decisions and the right choices, every time we say no to God, you mark our nail, something's happening to your heart. I'll tell you the whole story, but the preacher said that they had a member that was started the church with him. It was like a like a, for years. Church grew, prospered, flourished. The man was a deacon. He was standing in the choir, taught an adult Sunday school class. Just sold out. Until it got to the time where the pastor noticed he dropped out of the choir. Then he got a note from him and said, I need to give up my Sunday school class. And every effort of the pastor that he resigned as a deacon, every effort of the pastor to talk to him was met with refusal. In other words, he, he was avoided. Go to the house and knock on the door and know he was there. And his wife would say, he's not home. Roll her eyeballs back and he knew what that meant. He'd go back to his shop when he knew he was in the backyard and bang on the door knowing he was in there and get no answer. Finally, this story goes that one day they round each other at church and like rounding a corner in a hallway, you know, where two halls meet and they grabbed him and he said, oh, you're, you're killing me, man. I love you like a brother. Well, what is going on? And just begged him and said, let's come to my office. Let's have a cup of coffee. Please, I've got to talk to you. This is killing me. The guy can say, well, you can Pastor said, I'm talking And the guy said, Pastor, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. Don't take it personally. It's nothing between you and me. He said, I just got to the place in my life and my business that I'd always dreamed of being. And I could see early retirement. I could see my goals being met. I could see everything working out. Just like I dreamed. When God called upon me, I'm not going to tell you what it was. But he said, God called upon me to do something I'm not willing to do. And I'm not going to do that. It would change my whole entire life. It would destroy most of the plans and dreams I've ever had. And I'm not going to do it. Then every time I came to church, when I told God no, every time I came to church, it seemed like that's what she was preaching on. And the preacher started explaining how do I preach on what I meant. No, I know you didn't. Because every missionary preached about it too. They came through. Every guest preacher we ever had. Every Sunday school lesson. I said. And he said, Pastor, now I come late and sit in the back and I leave during the invitation. And the only reason I come at all is I don't want to hurt my wife and more than I've already hurt her. And I don't want to be a worse example to my children than I already am. But I assure you, Pastor, when I come to church, I see nothing, I hear nothing, I feel nothing. I got his line. I got so used to hearing now familiar truth that I have no intention to obey. My heart is stone. 
Solomon said, that's a really impressive story. It is, but he didn't get there because of one thing he said. It's a process of time. And I just would like to ask this question. Is God asking you to do something you're unwilling to do? It doesn't have to be being called to preach or be a missionary and go to the far reaches of the world. Yeah, I said, is God calling on you and confronting you in His Word about anything that you're not willing to obey? If God's telling you about anything, this needs to be a part of your life. And you refuse? Is God saying to you about anything? You need to put that out of your life. And you refuse? You need to know. If that is God confronting you by His Word, and you, in your heart, say no. You pretend you don't see it. You act like you don't hear it. Every time something is happening to the Lord. Every time. I said every time. And it can get hard and hard. Maybe somebody's here this morning when you say, well, in fact, my heart's so hard on what, would it, what good would it do me? I've been to the altar before and nothing happened. I believe what I do is just kind of lay hold of the Word of God. Because this Word is able to crush the hardest rock. And this Word is like a fire that's able to consume the most difficult circumstances. It's, uh, this Word... It's like a sharp, two-edged sword. It's able to cut. I believe what I do is just get down here and say to God exactly where you are. I said no. I am so cold. My heart is so indifferent. It's not like it'll be a surprise to me, you know. I can't tell that to God. What? As though He doesn't know? It's called confession. Agree with God about your situation. Because you know what God's able to do? Melt a cold heart. Crush a hard heart. That's what He's able to do. You know what He's able to do? Since it's referred to soil, He's able to break up fallow ground that's non-productive. He's able to do that. And if your heart is there, then I suggest you not play a game with your condition of your heart another day. And if you're here today without Jesus, then the thing you need to do is come and say, I want to trust Jesus to be my Savior. I want to call upon Him to forgive me of my sins. To be confronted and fail to answer. Time and time and time again. Thinking there's plenty of time, the heart changes. Callous 